Hey, my name is Julie Leone and this podcast is called What's Your Thing? This is where I have conversations with people about their passions, ideas, pastimes, missions or lifestyle that I find inspiring. I hope you do too. Hello, it's Julie and another episode of What's Your Thing? And this week I've got Steve Jones with me, who um, I was first told about I don't know, a long time ago, about eight years ago, by a friend who was doing my hair at the time. And I was telling her the story about how very irresponsibly, when I was about 24, 25, I hitched down to the south of France with another girl, which has a whole story behind it, which I can't, I'm not going to share here. But we hitchhiked down to a, a friend in the middle of France who'd bought a farm that he was setting up as a permaculture farm. But it, when we arrived, it actually wasn't permaculture farm it was a a rundown farmhouse with no roof on it and an old vineyard and a pig and we camped in the woods and it was my first experience of a compost toilet and there were great big vats of kind of peanut butter and olive oil and um the days were spent digging up vines and getting chased by wasps and and working with the pig and the only place to wash was a, a water hand pump um and it was just blissful it was just idenic and and so the days were spent working hard and the evenings were spent around a fire and in the one room that did have a roof we'd have this great big wooden table where we chop the tr fresh vegetables up um and it, yeah it was just golden just golden memory so that was my introduction to permaculture and that's why this friend told me about steve so we kind of connected and then this is actually our first conversation so i other than, i know very little about him apart from his website and the fact that he comes highly recommended so steve well nice to finally meet you it's been a long long time coming long time it is yeah. it is and so permaculture i can't even begin to start and explain what it is. So where, where do you want to start? Well, the short and snappy definitions, but they kind of leave you slightly cold. Let's, let's look at this. So permaculture is it's a design approach to problem solving. And it's, it's, it's a way of, yeah, okay, so that's, that's a smart, that's a beginning, sharp beginning, a design approach to problem solving. What the hell does that mean? What kind of problems? Well, it's like, Oh, it's hard to know where to begin, isn't it? Just dive in anywhere. Yeah. Our teacher is the natural world. Permaculture teaches that. How, so really, I mean, to paraphrase, how the hell are we going to get out of this mess? And we're not just in one mess, we're in multiple messes. In fact, we're, we're in a sort of a system that's divorced from reality because we make decisions through economic models and money, and which, which are made up things which are manipulated in, in, in themselves um, by the markets and stuff like that. So what the hell is real? And, and um, you know, we've got all of these different cultural divides, religious divides, uh, you know, beliefs, different belief systems that actually put ourselves at, at, at loggerheads. And it's not just Christian and Muslim, it's Catholic and Protestant, Sunni and Shia, you know, what the hell? How, how do we make a decision about anything? And permaculture just strips it all away. And, and so well, if we had to kind of not begin again, but begin, you know, with a really a fresh way of looking at things, stepping away from these kind of abstract material world, GDP growth, paradigm shift world that we're in, and go back to what's real. Well, what do we all know that is real? And it's the things that we can observe and experience in the natural world that we all have the same observed experience of. And I'll give you an example. Water flows downhill. Argue about that one. You know, unless you add energy and allows it to, you know, to, in some way to move up again. So the, the heat of the sun might evaporate water and move it around. But that is, that's energy in. So the basic reality that we all experience, no matter what your cultural background or mindset is, water flows downhill. So there's a few more things like that we can learn by observing from the natural world that are universally true. So wouldn't it be kind of wise to base the, um, you, know, the you know, the foundation stones of our, of our you know, design systems on things that we all know to be demonstrably true? Now that kind of sounds super obvious and almost so stupid, 
but we're now caught into a world really of all this misinformation, media management, you know, the, the way that we receive information in the modern world is, is, is a part of a corporate profit-driven process. So how can we ever know what we're seeing is accurate? And so permaculture really begins with the number one principle, which is observe and interact. And it, essentially, don't let anybody tell you what to think. Allow other people's experiences and opinions to set a framework for you, but figure it out from your own experience. So you start with very, very simple things. Organic matter decays to compost. You know, it decays, decays, breaks down into humus, which feeds soil. Another way of another looking at the system, put aside your economics and the way that we, we've talked about sort of finite things and all that sort of stuff is, actually the world is endless in the sense of natural systems have no waste within them. Everything is always reincorporated. And it's driven by the new energy that's entering the system. And the new energy that's entering the system is sunlight. So nature runs on sunlight. <clears throat> and as soon as you go beyond that, you're running down natural capital. So in trying to be smarter, to have more uh, material in intensive lifestyles, we've depleted the natural capital of the plant, of the, of the, the very thing that is, is that we depend upon. The things that gives us clean air and water and stuff like that. And all that the market can do is to commodify those things. It, it, it fails to understand how those processes work. Um, the fact that water flows downhill is no problem at all when you have a pump and you can pump it back uphill again. And that's what agriculture is based on. It's based on pumping water uphill. That's irrigation. Don't forget, water comes from where? The sky, which is up. Why would we ever need to have to pump water up when it came from above? So the, the theory, the principle in, in, in permaculture for observing how reality works is catch us to energy, things like water, and hold them as high in the system as you can. So if you've got lots of forests and bogs and things like that up on top of mountains, is you've got water above you, you'll never have a drought. Because over time, water only ever does one thing as it trickles back down to the sea again. So there's my, there's, there's a, a sort of a way of, here, here was a, something that, my light bulb moment was a, a quote from Bill Mollison, one of the originators of the permaculture. He said, you're either accumulating soils and you have the ability to go on forever, or you're eroding soils. And it doesn't matter how smart your technology is, you will not survive. That's a tangible way to understand, not sustainability, but this idea of, you know, whatever. Yeah, how do we live on this planet without constantly depleting it, which is what we've managed to do. We've accelerated that process in the last 200 years in, in some astounding way. So we, it's we interesting. Sorry. No, 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 I'm just reflecting. It was, a, so it's today it's the 6th of February and I think somewhere around the 3rd of February, a report came out by a professor of something in Cambridge mm -hmm. who was um, saying, calling for a new economic system, which I know is, you know, other people have been calling it for a long time, but it was a research project. And he was saying the problem with GDP is it doesn't consider the depreciating assets and the depreciation of the assets that we don't consider are the depreciation of nature. Mm. Well, also is GDP just measures the throughput of resources through an economy. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? It's not, it's no, it's just an assumption that more things flowing through more, you know, throughput of resources is a good thing. Well, it, it, that's not necessarily true. And in a world where we're rapidly depleting the resource base, it's obviously we can't keep accelerating that. It's demonstrably observable. So and instead of trying to explain it all the way with tricks and mirrors and economic theories and stuff is, no, your basic principle of market economics is flawed. That's it, it doesn't work. And that's because there's externalities. And like you say, is we don't, it doesn't, the assumption within market economics is, I was originally an economics teacher. Well, I, I grew up on a farm. I come from, you know, from, uh, uh, if you like, from a more tangible world, if you like. Um, I, I'm used to thinking about things in this way. Um, so how did you get into permaculture? So you grew up on a farm and you've, you're an economics teacher. So just join those dots up for yeah. us as to how well, you got here. I was born into a particular type of farm and a particular era of farming that now does not exist anymore. And the whole world that I grew up on evaporated and has turned into huge oilseed rape fields. And it used to be lots of like patchwork of little fields and copses and woods and, you know, little ponds and, and 
it was a diverse, rich landscape. And I grew up, that was my play experience, you know, my outdoor play was, it was all I ever did. I didn't really have toys as a kid, didn't need them. I had sticks and trees and stuff. Um, so land like that all got amalgamated together and sold off and became like development ranges around the edges of Wolverhampton and wherever it was. I don't exactly know what happened to it, but what I know is that they bulldozed it flat. And I, as a kid, I witnessed the destruction of the natural world that I had grown up in, let alone what had happened before, which is in, um, so. And how was that? What impact did that have you, this child that played in it and it sounds like you were at home in it? Absolutely, totally traumatizing. And then, and also told that's progress. That's how you grow more food is if you obliterate nature, you can then control all the variables and you can have one very big field of potatoes where you don't get you know much less potential for disease and all sort of stuff. All of that is actually wrong-headed thinking, but I was unable to articulate that as a six-year-old or a nine-year-old mm. or a ten-year-old as, as I sort of grew up and, and, and saw that world evaporate and fall apart. What were the losses for the child? You know, the child you when you you know what were the things that you felt the most? Oh, it's really hard. It's only now even I'm still processing the trauma of having come from somewhere. So as a kid. On my farm, as five, five or six children, whatever, I could walk out the door under no supervision and I could walk two miles in any direction and I wouldn't meet anybody who didn't know who I was. I didn't know who they were, but they, you know, I had, it was a point of reference. Now he's the kid from that farm, Mr. Jones, the farmer's kid. You know, you see him around on their bikes sort of thing. You were known. And I also didn't realize that through my parents and say, so, look, the guys that worked on the farms and stuff like that. There was a tapestry of people there. It was probably remnants of, you know, bygone eras. All of that is not there anymore. It's just, there's just little commuter houses and bungalows and stuff. Do you know what I mean? It's like, it was a, it was a complex interconnected. Yeah, so they flattened the land, but they also destroyed the connections with the ancestry, it sounds like. Yeah, I think my dad had nine guys waiting for him every morning. And kind of, you know, he'd walk down to the barn in the morning. Oh, morning boss, what are we doing today? You know, it's like, now you just have contractors, there's no guys, there's no team, there's no, there's, you know, all of that's gone. You know, you just hire in a machine for the days you need it and somebody comes and does it, you don't necessarily know who they are. Um, so the relationships were lost. It sounds like relationship to the land, but also relationship with each other. Yeah, absolutely. The whole thing starts to dissolve away and I, I, I witnessed it. So there used to be an old, an old retainer, some old, old guy who worked on a farm, Bert Tent his name in long past um, and it would take him a year to get around the farm boundary with his brushing hook to tidy up the hedges it's like you couldn't do that now i mean well it just been the whole but bert Tench observed every single little detail that happened on the farm he noticed if the difference of whatever in the water table or the birds or the you know i don't know what the seasonal adjustments and stuff because he was there every day with his brushing hook interacting with nature observe and interact Number one rule of permaculture. And the more you interact with, with nature, the more it teaches you, the more through observation, not through some abstract thought, but through observation, water flows downhill, organic matter decays compost, plants goes to grow towards the light. The only new energy coming in is into the system is from the sun. If you operate within those parameters, then you have abundance. You never run out of anything. So we also that's the other lie we've been shot, told is this idea of things being in short supply. They're not in short supply. It's about how you deploy things and how, how you get, and so you, you have to focus on natural you know, natural resources. You have to really use and value natural resources that operate within the carrying capacity of the ecosystem. And then it doesn't deplete, it grows. And then you're in a system where you have surplus all the time. Um, sure, sorry. So no, so kind of, I wanna, cause I wanna, I know you do work in Africa and let's come to that, but I'm mm. curious about what happened to the child on the farm that led him to an economics, Degree. Uh, yeah. Okay. So um, I, I I got packed off to you know whatever. I went to some rural Shropshire grammar school, which was just like I did not really fit in. And at sixteen, I just I don't know what the I I don't know what I wanted to do. And um and I caught a break at, at the age of sixteen. Um, I thought I was just going to go to Wolves Poly and do a degree in computer science or something. You know, just some whatever. Can't think of anything else. I'm sixteen. I don't know where I'm going. Um, and I caught a break and I was inspired by an adult friend at 16. The school I had been to didn't really want me back post O-levels. I hadn't really, you know, 
whatever. And I didn't fit, is what it was. I didn't do anything bad. I just didn't fit. And, um, and, 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 yeah, so an adult friend, I was, I wrote out some letters and stuff like that. And I actually got into some program. It's called the Commonwealth Exchange Program. Wow. And I spent two years in a bubble of people, like 50 people from all over the Commonwealth. And so it's a bit different cultures and languages and all that. And main part of the experience was based in French speaking Canada in a community, two houses in the Laurentian mountains where we were a student community. We had to negotiate all of our own rules and how we went about and we you know, traveled around and did a whole bunch of interesting things. So I think it was being taken out of this limited world that we're in and shown that the way, and I got to travel all over the states, so I was 16, 17, 18, Canada and coast to coast and all that. And not just as a holiday maker, but to meet people and interact with people, stay with people. And all of this was orchestrated through this, this Commonwealth uh, Trust experience. So um, that opened my eyes. It was, it was a bigger world out there. And there was a teacher on that uh, in Canada in, uh, called Jerry Panels, and he inspired me. And he, had a, it was, he taught a subject called social biology, which is the sort of, I guess, evolution of kind of permaculture type thinking of how we as human inter interact with you know with the biological universe and, and what we create and so um so he inspired me into ecology then i started to begin to understand the observations that i made as a kid and hadn't understood because i was a kid um so yeah big up to jerry panels and um so then I came, when I came back from that, I was looking around and I got onto a degree course uh, at a sort of whatever, progressive college at Park Reading University to do development studies. And I looked at African development models. As a, you know, there were several different options you, know, you could choose throughout the course. I looked at, I went into the ecology options and um, whatever it was, but th that was, so there was the seeds of my interest in Africa. I already recognized that. I think we had distant family relatives that had been, you know, in the colonies and what have you. So part of me was, it was in my consciousness as a kid. I always had, you know, David Attenborough, you know, like Africa. Wow. It's, 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 you know, it's where it's at. Um, so, and, 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 you know, I'm actually trying to write a book because it's been such an interesting, a tangled, intertangled web. Mm. And, and one of the things that also you realize through permaculture is that everything's connected. Everything is connected because we're all, it's all part of the same thing. You know? Anyway, so a big chunk within the degree course was economics. In the day, if you're trying to understand how the world works and you have to understand models and power lines, Jonathan saying. Um, I got involved in grassroots education stuff. I worked for an organization called Reading International Solidarity, previously in a world education. And it came out of the back of live aid and things like that, and band-aid and stuff. And we began to ask the question, so it's not, why are these people hungry? Like the world's in abundance of food. Why the hell are people hungry? Surely it's bad planning and bad politics and bad economics, not God-given disasters. It was just how it's always kind of sold to us. So again, so that set me on the way with sort of the degree sort of content really as well, just looking at different development models and then getting into actually being, and that kind of, yeah, and that led me to environmental education, because obviously that's within this sort of paradigm shift, is beginning understanding how, how we relate to the external world and stuff. Um, and then the watershed moment really pointed out to that, and I, okay, so I, and I trained as a teacher, so I, I, I just made the decision I wanted to go and work in Africa, and I applied for loads of different things, and I thought, well, I've done educational work, but I'm not trained. I didn't have a formal qualification. So I went back to university and did a PGCE. And the only subject I could get onto was economics because that was, I got all these trendy degrees. It isn't really a tr traditional subject. So economics. Yeah. Okay, all right. So, that's, so I got pigeonholed back back to the, the very thing I was trying to get away from, but there you go. Um, so that's, that's where the economics uh, teacher thing came up. But then the next watershed thing for me was uh, 26, the middle of the Thatcher regime skin not really going anywhere it's kind of i've had my first flush done two or three years interesting stuff after university but then i was like oh, i don't know where i'm going i don't believe in any of it i think the whole thing's rubbish but i don't know what else to think i don't know how to get out of it pre-internet and stuff like that it was so difficult to get new yeah. information and, um so i bought a one-way ticket to nairobi i got rid of everything that i owned and i got a few hundred quid in travel checks i bought a one-way ticket to nairobi i went with a friend and we stuck our thumbs out we hitchhiked for a year 
We went to 14 different African countries, ended up in Zimbabwe running a permaculture farm in huh. 1991. And once and I, got, once I reached that farm, it then felt like everything that happened in my life previous to that was destiny bringing me to that place. That's pretty wild, isn't it? To have done that kind of courageous and in the way that you can do in your 20s when you've but that's quite I a know, big... what was I thinking? What was I thinking? I was completely mad. Um, but I got away with it. Cause yeah, I mean I've been to Kenya and Uganda and I don't remember feeling massively safe in mm. those those places. So um and Zimbabwe at that time was not necessarily the safest place either was it so ha and and you you arrived to do permaculture but like I'd, but I'd never heard of permaculture I didn't know no so I, how I, did I, you I, even what did you do well I allowed the wind to blow me to the right place because that's what happens when you hitchhike for a year everything is chance but we then taught that there's no such thing as random even random patterns can random in the random events can form to patterns that's what the I Ching tells us so it, it is really weird so and again, this is one of my philosophies, right? So if you go on holiday and you pre-book your taxi and you pre-book your plane and you pre-book your tour on day two and all of this sort of stuff, you know, in your hotel and everything, then nothing happens that you didn't plan and it's basically boring. If you don't have a plan at all, you just turn up and stick your thumb out, then yeah, loads of, you know, you waste lots of time, bad things happen, but ultimately this tide of change, it's, it's interacting with chance. It takes you to the place that you need to be. That's what happened to me um and how did you and uh, how so you arrived how did you know that you were meant to be doing permaculture that you'd never done before and how how do you even start to do something you've never done before well that's why i'm trying to write a book about it because it's it's, it's... no okay this was this, this is my dilemma in in when i whatever what year it was 86 or something 87 whatever it was i was having all these these sorts of like i just knew what i didn't want I was anti-capitalist, anti-racist, anti-Thatcher, anti-war, anti-corruption, anti-court, you know, whatever. And just saying, what, what the, so what are you for? Is it like you delete everything until, and what's left is what you are? No, what are you actually for? And permaculture is the answer to that, but I didn't know that word. I had to go out and, and it's not the word, it's the, it's obviously it's the, the, the ideology, the thinking behind it. Um, and it's the first, when I encountered it, I knew that it was right because it was the first thing that anyone had ever said to me that made sense. Um, and so it was very fe felt. It sounds like it was a felt experience yeah. rather than a head-led experience. Deeply emotional. Deeply, mm. deeply, deeply emotional. And involving in complete immersion of your whole self to find it. Not just reading a few books. Because I, I didn't know what I was looking for. Now there's all this permaculture stuff on YouTube and you just think it's some techniques. It's not. Um, it's how the hell do we survive on this planet when we're surrounded by craziness? And um, you know, so many different layers to that. Of course, the first thing it teaches is you can't change the outside world. You can only start with yourself and your own inner world. If you begin to change your own inner world, that manifests itself in your own person. And then you can make that happen in your home zone, if you have one, and through your community, right? So change comes out from the middle, not Ooh. by sending out postcards and petitions to the zone five, to the outside world. I mean, it's not to say those things don't have an effect, but you don't know what the effect is because you don't get any feedback. If you make changes within your home, you experience those, whether they work well, is it hot, is it cold, is it light, is it dark? You experience that immediately and you can make adjustments. But when you make so how, can you give us an example of, of that where you've changed from the inside, because you're right, whenever I've read about permaculture, I haven't had, I, I was unaware of the that bit, the kind of change the inside to change the outside. People think it's gardening. Yeah, no, that, well, that's, I, I knew it was systems and I knew it, <laughs> uh, I'd read a bit of, is it Donello Meadows? Donello Meadows systems thinking and. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, so tell me about the inside out change bit. Well, look, um, so. Nelson Mandela had an idea. This is one of the ways I teach it, okay? Nelson Mandela had an idea. The authorities that be did not like that idea. So they took Nelson Mandela's physical body 
and put it on Robben Island in a prison for decades. Did that change the idea? No. It greatly inconvenienced Nelson Mandela, but he was still able to maintain that vision from inside his head, even though he was in a prison island. So change, a vision of, of how we create a better world, it begins with being able to visualize it in your own head. And you then need to be able to find common cause and overlap with other people so that then that vision can become three dimensional. And you're never going to find common cause with everybody is if we all have to agree about whether we're Protestants or Catholic first before we decide anything else. That stuff to me is what we call zone five. It's wilderness. It doesn't actually matter. It's, oh, that, 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 that's the wrong way to put it. I might even offend someone if I put it is. But that's campfire. We'll talk around that in the evening with a glass of beer. That's interesting, right? We don't need to discuss whether water flows downhill or whether organic matter decays to compost. And of course, the reason why I keep repeating these things and they're so important that we might even, they're so self-apparent that we have forgotten them, it's this. Our system runs on energy, planet Earth, runs on energy. The only new energy coming in is from the sun. Now, only plants can trans, that's not quite true, but let's just stay with generality. Only plants can trap the energy of the sun and convert it into a storable form. So you can sit in the sun all day and get nice and warm and top up your tan, but your belly's hung empty and you'll be hungry and you'll, you'll malfunction. Uh, ultimately, if that all you get is sunlight. Well, plants thrive on it. How do they do that? Well, there's an interesting thing. is They form associations with other organisms um, uh, to, to be able to also access the other minerals and things that they need. And they do that through fungal mycelial networks. So it turns out that the only way to store energy is by partnering with plants and plants grow in soil. So soil is really, really important. And the whole plant degrading to compost thing turns out to be the thing that makes soil go on forever. So if you forget that and you think you can replace that with agrochemicals and fertilizers, is you're going to fail. Which is what's happening, isn't it? Did I read somewhere that we've only got about another 30 harvests go to go and then that's, that's us done? And that's, yeah, yeah. Soil's the most important resource because it translates the energy of the sun into stored, into carbon, car, um, you know, into carbon, into whatever, into, into, uh, into sugars and carbohydrates. Can you help me make the link from, so at that, so there's the kind of soil plant sun bit, mm -hmm. and then you started to talk about the the kind of inside out. Can you just okay, help so me yeah. make that link between hands in the soil and human systems a bit? So I kind of can't see that bit. Yeah, so it's, 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 it is a big subject, so, and, I, and I am ranging around a bit. So the one hand is the grounding part is when we observe nature, what does nature teach us? And it teaches us all that stuff about soil and compost and turns out to be highly, highly, highly important. Okay, so then, okay, so how do I create change in the world? Ah, pandemic, global cataclysms here, there and everywhere, climate change, everything. Okay, make a compost seed. Make a decision in your head, I'm going to make a compost seed. And the next day, make a compost seed. And if it isn't very good, observe and interact, change it, evolve it, make it better. That's what nature does, it evolves, doesn't it? So you can't solve the world's soil loss problem in one step. But the first thing you can do is you can make an, uh, a commitment to saying, I would like to contribute to being part of a regenerative solution for this, this issue. I want to educate myself. So go away, read about soil and compost and stuff like that. And then, um, and then start to apply it to yourself and to your garden and your community. And what happens is your neighbors will go, oh, look what she's doing. I'll have a crack at that myself. And then these ideas populate. And then suddenly those little mushrooming, you know, uh, uh, innovations popping up around everywhere, ultimately start to influence policy and in, in, influence how money gets invested and stuff like that. So, and do you think that's, because my, so during lock, the last lockdown, mm. I became aware of, um, I don't know, there's a project called This Garden is an Ark, and there's the Blue Heart Project, which are all about turning your garden over to nature a bit more and mm. planting a trillion trees. And, and so I kind of, and then the pandemic 
has had more people in nature, hasn't it? And had like I was out walking on my one walk today, and I saw people stopping and staring more than I might have noticed before. I mean, what what's your perception of the the pandemic and how this is helping or not helping? Oh. It has destroyed so much creativity, so many plans, and so many enterprises, and have been destroyed by this pandemic. Hey, that's the thing is, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that really. I don't I really don't know because I think we're still in the middle of it. So it's really hard to even even say that. But look, it depends what age group you are, you grew, whether you grew up the Club of Rome in the 70s or you know the, the, the Rio Earth, uh, Rio Jajira Earth, Earth Summit 92. Um, but these have been these key milestone moments when we have been told very clearly is we're not on a sustainable course and we need to make changes, very, very significant changes. Um, um, somehow within that, within this consumerist world is, as individuals we become so divorced from the natural world, is we don't even understand our relationship anymore. And it, we've got to go away and create new, you know, whatever languages or, or lexicons like permaculture to rebuild what actually to our ancestors or to, to First Nation societies around the world is, it's just obvious. It's self-apparent. They wouldn't. They don't. They almost laugh at permaculture. We don't need a language for this. This, this is already within our culture. So we are. And we have to understand in the West we are culturally deficient. We think we're so clever, but we, we, we. It's only within a certain sort of you know range that we are, and we're overlooking really really obvious things. I'm going to give you a really simple example now, and it's one of my pet peeves, and it is dog waste in plastic bags oh yeah how stupid is this right and we understand the kind of thing linear thinking that creates this it's like oh that is a uh, a potential hazard there put it in a bag pop it in a bag and someone will come along and pick it up okay nice plan but let's just unpack that and go hang on a minute so what is dog feces it's a biodegradable natural compound that could be managed in a way in which it, that, that biodegradation could be accelerated and contained and, and it could go back to building soil. But oh no, so even in our little local park, they have I don't know, several hundred weights every week of dog feces, which is still mainly water, don't forget, in plastic bags, which have to then go in a truck, which is burning diesel, to go and take it somewhere and put it in a hole in the ground. So in our post-climate change, or post-oil world, our, our descendants will be going, you did what? Mm. And it's because we're going against the biology of the situation. We're coming up with a silly kind of a bean counter, you know, I don't know, linear way of thinking solution. Oh, it's hazardous. We'll put it in a plastic bag and we'll drive it somewhere else and throw it away over the horizon where we can't see it and we can pretend that that thing doesn't exist. But we've now embedded into our, into our economy ways of just wasting enormous amounts of energy, moving dog shit around. Pardon my French, but for, you know, emphasis. Um, so what's the alternative? Well, you can make dog waste compost bins. You can put them in parks. And, you know, we, I, I'm not really a dog person. I don't have anything against them. I've not really been a big part of my life. I'm a cat person. Um, I live in a housing cooperative. We share our world. I share my world with other, other people. And uh, so I share my house with, uh, uh, what is it called? Staffy, Staff, Staffy, uh, not bull, oh, what is Yeah, Staffy. Yeah, Staffy, yeah, Staffy is what it is. Yeah, it's a cute thing. But boy, I didn't realise they produce a lot of <laughs> material um, evidence, whatever. You know, they're bulk, bulk producers. It's a little dog, but my God, you know. Um, so we have a, a standard refuse bin buried 80% underground in, in, in a well-drained garden bed, and we drilled loads and loads of holes in it. We toss the dog turds in there with sawdust, get your carbon nitrogen ratio right, breaks down. Completely odorless, plants are breaking it all down. Nobody's drying any, driving any trucks or anything anywhere. And the handling is minimal because the dog learns to drop off its deposits, you know, near to the bin. It's not, it's, you just, you know, have an appropriate scoopy thing and, and, and you know, or happiness all around. So that's an example of how you design out problems that using biological thinking. That's okay, so I get it. The penny just dropped. So it's that, it's it's where you're using what you learn from nature to 
Sorry. work in harmony with nature yes. and rather than See, coming yeah, it's okay. almost like rather than coming from head it's coming from observation and attention See, we, we have it drilled into us that there is no such thing as waste. That's one of our mantras. There's no, there's no waste in nature. So when you say dog waste, put it in a plastic bag, put that in a dog bin, and then have someone drive a truck, pick it up, take it. Nuts. Absolutely nuts. And that is the best illustration I can sort of give, a great illustration I can give you of just how completely devoid from reality the, that way of linear way of thinking is to the actual reality of how we would resolve those things in permaculture. Now, how so, you deploy those systems, there's a lot of learning of how to do it. But you know, the point is, the basic principles, we got it. We got it covered. And, and so how, so let's cycle back to Zimbabwe. Now I've understood it a bit better. So you're in Zimbabwe, making it up, <laughs> winging yeah. it. Yeah. And then, and you're still involved in Africa. So can you yeah. just tell us a bit more of your Africa story? Um, a seed was planted in me, certainly back in those days in Zimbabwe. And just to add, people have heard bad things about Zimbabwe. Zimbabwe is the most beautiful country in the world. And when I was there, it was an absolute having a heyday, so much so that we didn't see what was coming over the horizon a little bit, but um, a very, very special place. Um, and um, and uh, Bill Mollison uh, did a permaculture course in Botswana in the 80s. And there were four or six Zimbabweans on that course. And I think in the process of traveling around, I've met all of them. And each one of them became a pioneer that started something, so to seed in Zimbabwe. So I actually came away from there thinking, I didn't realize that permaculture wasn't African because I'd only seen it in an African context and I'd been taught it at an African training center called Bambids and I, which is in Harare in Zimbabwe. And it's all about starting with what you have or working with the bottom up. And what you have is mud, sticks and straw. And it turns out you can make and shit. And you can make everything that you need out of those things because with that you can make soil you can grow things and then you know it, it all it all rolls out from there but what you need is good design because it's you know you've got to accelerate your impact your, your effect you, you need to learn but um so you work with local and natural resources you understand there is no waste and you meet your key needs first not money or often money is a key need but you know what I mean? But actually think about what is it, what's the function of the design? What is it we're trying to do? Well, surely if we've got a function as a society or economy, it should feed people, shouldn't it? That would be a function. And people should have housing and food, security and water, and not have to live in constant fear. Okay, well, those would be design parameters. And we're not doing very well with that and our money-based system. So when we design permaculture things, we think, well, okay, how do we build food security into what we're doing? Well, we create cyclical systems around everything that we do. So we, whether it's you know, nutrient cycling, catching rainwater, um, building soil fertility, um, building knowledge, building social networks, all of these things are, they're not monetary, but they're tangible and actually they're much more useful. Um, so just to pause there, because I can, obviously it's a big complicated subject. It came into sharp focus for me in 2018, when we ran a seven month training program as a pilot in one of the very large refugee settlements in the north of Uganda. So when I say a settlement, that means that people have been displaced from mainly DR Congo and South Sudan, but they've been invited to stay. So you get, you can get an ID card and you can get, you know, a trial, give you a spade and a 70 meter by 70 meter foot rats or whatever it is, something like that. But then you're on your own. And if you're starving, then you get a bag of rice and a bag of lentils or whatever from the World Food Programme. But you've got to then build, build your, your world from the, up from the bottom. And then eventually, you know, schools start popping up and health symptoms. And you can see how these communities evolve. So they put us in to train, to give permaculture design tools. So rather than just teaching people how to do things, we actually give them the, the ways to resolve problems instead um, into these settlements. And what you notice there is, okay, is it's very clear, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you know, and it's, it's like, if you're cold and frightened and naked and hungry and, and you know, vulnerable in every way, is you don't care about, you don't, you're not making long-term plans. You're just in the short, immediate time, you know, and 
And once you've sorted yourself out, you've eaten and slept and what have you, then you can begin to think about the people around you in a little bit longer term, family, friends, community, and what are we going to do next week and next month and next year? Well, all those things come after. Um, so it's very clear in a refugee settlement situation where people have fled their homes with a few pots and pans. I mean, nothing. These guys walked 200 miles from a swamp to get to one of the remotest places I've ever been to start their lives all over again. So there's no, you can't ship in stuff from outside. You've got to work with what you've got. This is permaculture sort of ethics. And it's not preaching. What, it's, what permaculture says is that's what nature does. Nature works from local resources. It's not shipping stuff in from halfway. Okay, the bit of bird guano comes in and you know everything's interconnected. But the, the, the bulk, the volume of what any system is made out of is what was there already or what blew in on the wind or, you know, sort of thing like that. So, um, and then you've got a, 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 a people in refugee settlements where their focus is entirely on surviving and, or on short and medium term goals, let's say. They're not worrying about their pensions and retirement or political lobbying or, you know, I don't know, longer term things. They're like, what the hell are we going to eat today? What are we going to eat tomorrow? How are we going to pay the bills at the end of the month? That's, 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 see. So you give those people permaculture and they are paying 100% attention and they implement it immediately and it rapidly improves their quality of life significantly. People were saying, well, we used to eat food once a day. Now we eat it three times, maybe four. Um, and that's as a result of the permaculture tools that you took them? In six months life transforming wow. and all we did was tell them how to make compost but we didn't tell them how to make compost we told them why you would want to make the compost and how you connect it to systems that then nourish you so if you build those things into instances again if you're interested in starting a city from scratch is well you wouldn't do it like we do it you'd do it perhaps a bit more like they do in the refugee settlements you actually look at we've got to have toilets we haven't got toilets we've got typhoid and then we've got no people okay so get let's get you know what I mean? It's like that, really look at, at the priorities. And it's obviously that food and livelihood prior, uh, security is a livelihood, is, is, a, sorry, is, a, is a priority. Um, whereas here we've forgotten about that because, well, we've got welfare and we've got Tesco's and budget supermarkets. We don't have any of those options, especially in remote rural Africa. You've only got what's there. So we do all these clever things here, making stuff out of pallets and old tin cans and you know, whatever, you know, recycled materials. There's nothing like that in a refugee settlement. Not nothing. There's no waste at all. Um, so that, I mean, how much? Because when you tell me that story, like that's in, like you're changing people's lives, aren't you? Like not just one person at a time, but villages, communities, and to do that in six months. And it sounds like with not any money. <laughs> I don't know. You know, like. Um, I mean, that's how how's that changed you, Steve? That kind of what difference has it made to you? Well, many many ways. Part of me is very frustrated that we can't access more resources because we can. We're really good at this stuff. You know, this really works. Not about us, but it's, it's, it definitely really works. But the thing is, it's not a market-based solution, is it? It's not creating GDP growth and jobs and livelihoods and money. What it's doing is creating people growing their own vegetables. That doesn't create, there's no economic impact to that because, well, there is because they're healthier um, and things like that, but you, you, that, that's harder to measure. And so you also want to know how many Kenyan shillings a month are they making? Well, Uganda shillings, you know, rather than you know, other metrics for, their, for the, of, of success. Um, so I'm now looking back at our own societies and communities here in UK and realizing, I so say we're, dysfunctioning on many many levels and actually we've come to the end of our economic paradigm this is it's malfunctioning we don't know how to process that information so we've created a world of lies to to, to stop us all kind of having a breakdown but that's 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 where we're at and i really think that process accelerated in 2008 i think everything went nuts uh, when the, the global economy did collapse it didn't like oh we nearly just about saved it we were confronted with the reality that the whole thing is a Ponzi scheme and that you can't get away with it forever. You're, the, the day of reckoning will come. You're depleting topsoils faster than they're replenishing. You're in for a, a big, big shock. And you're not going to suddenly produce your, feel, your, your food in vertical farms and on Mars and all this sort of, that's just, that's not, if you sit down and look at the energy 
energy in, energy out equations, but none of that works. What makes works is to do things really locally with the resources that are already there, utilizing the people that are there as well, working with the natural flows of energy that are created by the fact that people are hungry and they want stuff to do. And they want to be, you know, Maslow's hierarchy again. We all need to feel included in. We can do that much better through community and cooperative projects than we can through the global market. You know, so I think we can rebuild community by starting thousands and thousands of community gardens, not allotments, community gardens, where you grow together in teams, coordinated by people who you know have got a degree of expertise in, in those areas. And then we can produce 30 or 40% of all of our food from within cities and suburbs, which means that if you're hungry and in need of, you know, there's no, there's no, there's no food banks. The food banks are potatoes and cabbages, the free range eggs and fish in barrels and rainbow chard. And you can access that by going to the end of your street and interacting with the local food economy. And I think that we are, it doesn't feel like it, but we're in the process of renaissance. Um, what we're experiencing is collapse because we're seeing an economic paradigm that's been dying for 40 years and we've just made it more and more extreme, if you like, to sort of paper over the cracks. So, um, and that changes, so permaculture lesson number 12, change is inevitable. You cannot, fight, you know, the only thing you're guaranteed is that tomorrow will be different from today. That's certainty. Um, so we have to learn how to deal with change rather than denying it for as long as we can and then suddenly trying to you know come up with some brilliant idea that fixes it all the brilliant idea that fixes it all is we need to re-understand that we're part of a living ecosystem james lovelock called it gaia you can look at the, at the earth and see it as a single organism in which we're all interconnected when you look in soil you understand soil fungi and everything's connected is it totally false? Everybody's freaking out about veganism and all that. And I get it, industrial agriculture is horrible and everything, but it's a false thing to think that there's a barrier between vegetable, animal, and mineral. They're not, they're constantly the same things interacting with each other, expressed in different forms. They're the same thing. And one can't live without the other. So plants, plants, plants grew, evolved in the sea. So how did the hell did they get onto the land? And what was the first, if, if, if life began in the sea, what was the first organism to move onto land? Surely we should be thinking about things like that because that's the, the succession that built the biology that we're now part of. The answer to that question is mycelium. They were the first organism to move on land. And algae, which is that you know, unicellular plant thing that can photosynthesize, fused with mycelium to create plants, which are neither one or the other. They're, they're, they incorporate elements of both, um, you know, types of life together. Think about what a lichen is. It turns mm. out lichens aren't the obscure, oh, that's a symbiotic relationship. Everything's a symbiotic relationship. So it sounds like when it, think about, if I'm stepping back and listening to what it means to you, mm. it's like everything, isn't it? This isn't, this isn't an add-on. This is how you live. It's kind of your, in your blood, in your veins, in your fingernails. It's a way of understanding the world, and it's the way that we need to incorporate back into our into our thinking. And, and, and it's, it will be forced on us. This is not a choice. This will be forced on us, you know, like gravity, like change is inevitable. Um, so either we move with you know, the evidence, or we, we, we just you know, make it harder for ourselves. And unfortunately, we, we're just very good at prevaricating because the, the challenges that we face are more fundamental than we really dare re confront ourselves mm. with. You know? It's not fine tweaking and fine tuning and otherwise coming along the economy. It's not. We're at the end of the whole idea of consumer capitalism. We're at the end of the idea of GDP growth. We're at the end of the idea of uh, of fiat currencies, the, 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 the cornerstones of the post-war economic paradigm are all gone. Petrochemicals, oil industry, it's collapsing and, and for good reasons. And um, so what Are you optimistic? That? Are you I'm, optimistic? I'm a professional optimist. It's my job to be optimistic. We all mm. have dark days. I get praise all the time for my enthusiasm. I don't always feel enthusiastic. I'm just quite good at public speaking um, <laughs> or practice. I am an optimist, actually, yes. And I, I also try and point out to people is 
Do you remember we're in the heart of the beast here? There's no worse country, there's no more corrupt country than the United Kingdom. There's no country more invested in the oil, coal, slavery, GDP growth, fiat currency, you know, city of London models than UK. We've pretty much made it up ourselves. So and when we talk about, oh, these poor corrupt countries in the majority world, ha! That's not corruption. That's petty thievery. Corruption is we invented corruption and we exported it around the world. It's called offshore banking. It's called a different set of rules for the capitalistic class. They can operate above and beyond the system. Well, that makes it then impossible to change the system. Mm. So if you can't change the system, it will collapse because nothing, everything has to evolve. Conditions on life are always changing. So, you know, um, yeah, so at some point you need to you know, relearn your information and reapply it. So I see it as we are at an evolutionary point in human history and we are making our, we're deciding right now with every action that we do, whether we're gonna have a future or not. And a big part of that is requires us to better understand our relationship to this sort of reality of this mm. spinning ball of rock going around the sun. You know, don't forget about that. We've got sucked into our YouTube online, you know, hyper sort of abstract world. And we forget that, no, soil. It's about soil. Nothing matters more than soil. It doesn't matter, you can put a value on soil. You can't buy soil, you've got to make it. And that takes time. That's a, that's a biological process. So also in permaculture, so you can't hurry the seasons. You can make the most of them and you can you know, stretch them, but you can't change the basic cycle of time. Mm. You, you know, you, you, so we can only fix things at a certain rate. And uh, so how, so, so we have to make this massive shift, mm. which is actually a, almost a, I don't know, it's a re, it's a rerouting rather than a, kind of it's yeah rerouting is the metaphor that comes to mind and i know we were kind of we had a brief pre pre-chat and you were talking about the courses that you're running and and actually the difficulty so just at the time when we yeah, most yeah. need this stuff actually then we can't because i think you don't you normally teach this actually on the land in the soil in groups yeah. around a fire yeah. and That's then obviously we can't do it so just tell me a bit about how you're solving those problems yeah well gosh oh, and, yeah we're, we're, we're trying to address so many different things but so first let me just name got sector 39 so that's uh just the name as an organization well an enterprise it is we started uh some years ago now um um to amplify uh the learnings these ideas to spread so value of exponential growth that's, <clears throat> i built i was involved in a project to build a roof garden on top of a We've got a forest garden with 176 species of plants on top of a building in Reading, public centre building in Reading. And it's at 39 London Street. And it was a permaculture statement. And I like the idea of how do you multiply this idea, idea and get it out into the world. So that's Sector 39, that's my enterprise. And we started teaching permaculture courses 2005, I think, 2006. Um, but I'd already been immersed in that world for another sort of 10, 15 years before that. But that was enough time people started then asking me, well, you know, can you explain this stuff to me? Um, so, and what, what's happened since, we've accidentally created an unintentional network, that is every student we've ever had, every tutor that's ever been on a course, every venue that we've ever been at. Because nine times out of 10 people on a, on a, when they come on these traditional old school PDCs, two week residential, a 12 day course, it's designed to be life-changing and 90% of people come on some have life-changing experiences. So they remember it and it becomes a significant milestone in their life. So for better or for worse, Sector 39 has been a significant milestone in many, many hundreds and thousands of people's, not hundreds of thousands, but you know, like, um, yeah, I, I can almost, it's hard for me to go anywhere now pretty much without bumping into someone who's been on one of our courses, you know, like it, the, the way that things work. So. And we established over the years a regular pattern. In, in, in the old days, we were in a yurt, in a field. Like you say, you'll, you'll remember memories of the first farm you went to visit. So we just like to say, change starts from the edges. So a lot of the permaculture projects started out on some rocky cliff somewhere in some rundown place, because that was the only places that people like us could afford, right? And um, 
out in the in the boondocks. Um, anyway, so and then obviously the PDC has evolved and, and fits fits many niches now. But it's the it's the core of knowledge that you need to know to have a ground level understanding of what is permaculture. And all of that is synthesized in a book called Permaculture: A Designer's Manual by Bill Mollison. And you can sit down and read it, but it's a weighty tome. So it was realized we need to bring that together in a way, bring it to life, to where people can interact with this knowledge in a way in which in two weeks they can get that headset on board. You know, and give thousands of examples, network them into all sorts of you know, human networks and information networks and things that allow their, their, their learning to continue. And so yeah, I used to do a spring one and an autumn one that made it easy to plan and you know, sort of tick calendar moments, you know, as the year goes by. I mean, of late, yeah, how do you plan anything with so many variables and so much unknowns and different restrictions levels and safety concerns and limitations of people being able to travel? And then it's changed the whole funding environment. It's changed the way that people have you know, money to spend, time. We would really like to do an on-farm course again, 12 days under canvas in a field on a beautiful organic farm. It really is life-changing. You wake up with the birds, the whole pace of life changed. You move to a space where you're only learning and you're only interacting with other people. You're not still half on YouTube, you know, whatever, caught, caught on your Zoom meetings and all of that. Now, I know it's not possible for everyone to go on a 12-day under canvas course. It never was. But in the early days, we were really trying to find the pioneers and the people who did it, like, they lived for this stuff. Not so much for people doing it in their, you know, accountants doing it on their, their, their weekends, holidays. But, um, you know, we're trying to mainstream these ideas. It's because it's never, permaculture was never supposed to be an ex exclusive club. It's, it's really is for everybody. But it started with the party pioneers. That's how new things happen. That's, that's the process. Um, so, to, to make, I, 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 or to make a course corona, whatever, COVID proof, it's got to be able to run completely online. That's just the answer. Okay. And, but, but, to get customers on it and to want people to really want to come on it, it needs to be on farm because that's the experience that most people are craving, especially after a whole year of Zoom. People want to be on the farm and they want to be in a, in a room. So the compromise I'm trying to come up with is, and it will be flexible, but is how about we do eight days online, all the theory stuff and videos, and we can do lots of, you know, do use online chat facilities actually very effectively. And we're getting better at doing that. So there's there's something. But then, so then instead of having 12 days on farm, let's just have four days on farm. And because then that's a whole lot fewer days. So it's a whole lot possible mo you know, moments of transmission that could be avoided. And if you're there for 12 days, you let your guard down. But four days, you could be a bit more sharp about, you know, uh, keeping your systems in place and keeping everybody safe. Um, and <clears throat> so, but for good online courses, I also think you want to have a real personality to them as well. So some of our PDs, some of the online courses that we have taught, we've still gone and taught them from the farm. We're still stood there with cows in the background, got our wellies on sort of thing, rather than just everybody talking out of their bedrooms. It doesn't quite have the same um, you know, mm. presence. Um, and so, but of course the, the plus point of doing online teaching is you can let people in from all over the world and it suddenly becomes a global event sort of like just being 15 people sat in a muddy field suddenly you've got people dialing in from all over the place so and again we've had to learn a lot about how to manage that and make that not be too distracting but, but there's a little there's some so eight days online four days on farm is what they're saying although we will let people some people do the whole 12 days on farm because maybe they're part, already part of the farm community or part of the farm community bubble or they live nearby. And if, if the numbers are low as well, then again, it's much easier to manage the risk. Mm. Um, so that's how we try to really think through all that. So we're actually like, so when, so there is a way forward and it, it kind of, I mean, I, I, but I can completely see the being 12 days on a farm and back because actually what it does, it's not just about connection with the land, is it? It's the bond with each other and the yeah. kind of day in, day out, eating together, you know, getting up and looking groggy in the morning. It's that that makes the difference, isn't it? And those relationships that build up. Yeah, because you're having a shared experience and that mm -hmm. shared experience is being shaped by nature because you're 
literally getting the door call us and we were aware whether it was a, a burst of rain at 3 a.m. because the tent, you know, whatever wrapping around. And this is what we kind of want to do is to retune people back into what's yeah. actually tangibly real. Um, and then begin to kind of build the language about how we then build on those observations. And obviously on the farm, there's so many processes going on all the time and it's just cows wandering around and, you know, but this, it's, it's incredibly dynamic, complicated, interconnected environment. So it's cool. So this is a friend's farm. I don't no longer, in, I mean, uh, my family was ejected from the farming world many, many years ago. Mm. Um, I, I spent a big, so I, I, I had this learning experience in Zimbabwe. I'm trying to tie up a few loose ends. I first got involved in permaculture. And then years later, I always knew I had to go back. That was a, I had to, sort of was a payback. I had to reconnect. And because actually I learned my light bulb moment, a lot of my education came from in Zimbabwe and those first years of permaculture in Zimbabwe were massively important to me. I felt like I was bringing this new idea back to Britain and realized, oh, it was here already. And actually it started in Australia, but no one told me. But, um, but that shows to the adaptability where people can make these ideas their own too. It's not some diktat from on high. It's, it's challenging you yeah, to embrace the regionality, you know, embrace the fact that we're all having a slightly different experience. So what's right for me is not going to be what's right for you. You'll have different resources, different skills, different set of priorities, different timelines. And so it's not, it's a non-prescriptive way of problem solving. Mm. It's again, the opposite of sort of big, big uh, system thinking. And big, yeah. So Steve, we're actually coming up for the hour, unbelievably. Yeah. Mm. Um, so two questions. The first one is, you know, what do you most want people to take away from this? Look, it feels like everything's falling apart, but it's actually the beginning of something much more, um, sorry, I let that, it's the beginning of something very new happening. And it could, it, change is always difficult and painful. So it's, there'll be casualties and we're, we're sorry. You know, it's not we're not, no one's advocating this, this is what's happening. All we're doing is observing and describing reality. Is you can't have a coal mine that goes on forever because it gets deeper every day. So the, the, the energy profit goes down. You know, so we've created models that have, it can't run forever. Um, so we're experiencing that. And there is a way forward. There really is. But you've got, like anything, you've got to take a little bit of time out to think about it and disengage a bit from the momentum of this hectic day-to-day -day life that so many of us are caught up in. Actually, where are we going? Do we even want to go there? Permaculture, so permaculture moves from patterns to detail. We always try and get the biggest overarching long-term view and then focus in on the details. Whereas in the day-to-day -day world is you're just bombarded with details and you have no context. So stocks and shares go up and down and this and that. Is that good or is that bad? No idea. It's just numbers, it's just detail. You know, whereas actually we took a whole step, millions of steps back and said, what is it as a society we're trying to achieve? Surely a stable environment and food security for a society, that, those would be fairly obvious things. And we're failing really badly on it, really, really badly. So surely then it tells me the system isn't working. Mm. It hasn't been for a long time. So you have to invest in that process. So join together, find like-minded people. Don't go into a bubble. Find people who are actually looking for positive solutions and actually then trying to act on them. Mm. We just collect ideas in the West. We just, oh, it frustrates me. And this is maybe a closing thought, but a frustration for me teaching permaculture in the UK is people go, oh, that's so interesting. I'm going to file that under interesting between opera and cricket or something like that. Whereas in Africa, you teach people these permaculture ideas, they start to implement them immediately because they don't have all these other options. We're mm. so spoiled. Even now, with all the distress that we're feeling, is we have no idea how spoiled we are. So it's, it's do something. But, yeah. but it's find different things to do and, yeah. and, and engage. Yeah, and, and have a sense of priority. So we, we reconnected, we started reconnecting with Uganda in 2014 I, I, um, through local Wales, Wales for Africa charities. And um, I went to have gone out there and back there and seen, so there's some of the fastest growing populations in the world around Lake Victoria, um, uh, Uganda, Tanzania, a bit north of Ethiopia. And um, these are places where everyone's a small farmer. 
And no one invests in small farmers. If you're a small farmer, you just have to guess. You just copy your neighbors. But just drop, if you want to have an impact, if you want to multiply effect, the place to teach permaculture isn't in Britain, where everybody is 70 and jaded and closed-minded. East Africa, 70% of the people are under the age of 30. 50% of the population of Zimbabwe, of uh, Uganda, under the age of 14, 15, 50% at school. So there's a receptive uh, 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 society that's still inventing itself. They haven't built motorways yet. They haven't built airports all over the place. They haven't got, you know, static phone lines and all these sort of things. They, they're deciding what they're going to do. They're moving straight from mud. I kind of think mud huts, solar panels, cell phones, organic farming, you know, about 90% of the way there. Steve, we're going to have to stop. Uh, like, so for me, like when I, I so if, so if I take it back to that time in France, mm. I don't remember having any conversations about what permaculture was. Yeah. But I think what I, but we did stuff. We did stuff that connected. So we took the pig dung and we put it on, on the thing and then we ate boss toilet taught you more than most things that you've ever experienced because you said yeah you don't have to be scared of your own feces it's really easy you can manage it and break them down yeah totally harmonious way of nature you don't need all this infrastructure and miles of, of water pipes and sewage farms it's absurd it's like the dog compost thing That's, yeah and just watching the pig dig up, you know, we were working on the um, the old vines and then the pig was helping us and rooting it up and fertilizing as we went. It was just such go. a perfect yeah. system. So it kind of in so many ways, it's it's we doing and getting hands dirty and kind of coming out of our heads and getting back in very much so into the soil. So, so Steve, just something more you do than, than something you talk about. You think, yeah, no, I get that. And that, so this is obviously a massive conversation and I definitely do want to get on one of your courses. So Steve, we're going to put links in yeah. um, at the end so that people can um, find you and find Sector 39. Well, so we have Sector 39, but because it's been going for so long, it is a rambling network of all over the place. So in the last year, I've created a new site that sits within it, which is the Academy. Sector 39 Academy of Permaculture. And okay. I've just done the last 11 months' work all in one place. So it's, it's Brilliant. a bit easier, a bit more easier to access. So that's the link okay. I send you. And uh, hopefully people will find their way in through that. Okay. Brilliant. So I'm going to stop recording now. Thank mm -hmm. you, Steve. Um, and uh, yeah, I'll put links in the, the notes, everybody. Thanks for listening. Bye. <laughs>and if you can leave a review do that way more people find out about it just wanting to share exciting and interesting ideas um, particularly at this weird covid time take care